The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. You have enlarged the nation and increased their joy. They rejoice before you as people rejoice at the harvest, as warriors rejoice when dividing the plunder. For as in the day of Midian's defeat, you have shattered the yoke that burdens them, the bar across their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor. Every warrior's boot used in battle and every garment rolled in blood will be destined for burning, will be fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the greatness of his government and peace there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Almighty will accomplish this. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. All right. Well, welcome today. Uh, We are literally in a snow globe this morning, and it's kind of pretty, isn't it? I'm uh, really excited that this is the first Sunday of Advent, so... And this is the day we got. And you all got out, which is also um, good. It's good. So, today we begin uh, a sermon series entitled Foretold, where we'll be looking at four different Old Testament prophets and what they have to say in anticipation of the coming of Christ. Uh, Because the Christmas season, spiritually speaking, Uh, is supposed to be distinct from much of what we commonly associate with Christmas in our culture. Uh, It's not supposed to be about buying stuff. All right, we'll leave that there. Uh, Or Santa and his elves. If I had known Santa was going to be here, I wouldn't have tried to offend him. Uh. Oh, it's also not about watching Home Alone and Elf on repeat until you can barely stand the sound of it. Um, I don't know if that's just my house, but uh, that happens from time to time, doesn't it? Spiritually speaking, Christmas uh, is, this Christmas season is a, is a time when histor- that Christians have re- historically referred to as Advent, as Advent, to focus on the coming and birth of Jesus, of the Christ. Advent, which is a funny word, we don't often use it, uh, in its just literal meaning, actually just means something that is coming into being. So if there's an advent horizon, right, it just means the sun is coming up. Uh, And every year, Christians set aside this time to look, to wait, to anticipate and hope for the child to be born in Bethlehem. We, We step into the narrative. We anticipate the coming of Christ so that we can remind ourselves every year of the significance of what that coming means for us and for the entirety of the world. And also, during this Advent season, Christians also set a time to focus on Christ's second Advent, his second coming, as we learn the ways in which the people in the Old Testament anticipated the first coming of the Messiah. We then uh, lean into the second coming of Christ and and, uh, experience a longing for that as well. Now, when most of us read about the birth of Jesus, when most of us are familiar with it, we read the New Testament accounts of his birth, right? Usually we select Luke's gospel because that is the gospel that Linus read. But, uh, and, we, and we hear the evangelist talk to us about the miracle of Jesus' birth, which is great. I remember there was one Christmas morning where I couldn't sleep. I was, 
not particularly good at sleeping on Christmas Eve when I was a young man. And d full disclosure, I'm still not. Uh, I, it's, a, it's a restless night for me, usually. Uh, and I couldn't sleep, and so I went and I got my Bible. I think it was about 4.30 in the morning, and I just kind of plopped it open to Luke's Gospel, and I read it through at the beginning of Luke's Gospel. And even as a junior hire, which was far too old to not be able to sleep in anticipation of Santa coming, uh, I just remember the kind of silence and stillness of that moment, that it was this, uh, this holy and silent moment as I read the Christmas story out of out of Luke's gospel, and I felt the closeness of Jesus with me in that moment. It's a beautiful thing. And uh, this makes sense, and it's something we should do, right? Read the gospel, read the gospel accounts, the, story, the stories of Christ's birth during this season, during the Advent season. But historically, Christians have not only read the gospels as a way of learning about Jesus. In order, uh, and specifically during the Christmas season, we often will be reading, or Christians read, prophetic texts, texts from the Old Testament. Uh, one of the primary ones is the text we read today from the book of Isaiah. This passage in the ninth chapter of Isaiah is probably one of the most prominent and important Christmas texts uh, that Christians read. And the question we should be asking ourselves is why, right? Why do we go to the Old Testament as a, as a place to learn about Jesus? Because at the time when, when the prophet Isaiah wrote this passage, it was, seven, it was roughly 730 years before Jesus was even born, right? Before he even appeared on the scene. And the reason for this, the reason for this is that Christians have, from the very early days, believed that the truths about Jesus could be tracked through the whole story of Scripture. That God was kind of a master storyteller, and he was weaving the truths about the Messiah, the truths about Jesus, throughout the whole story, you know, we believe that it all anticipates him. It all points to Jesus. And actually, all the scriptures find their fulfillment, their summing up in the person of Christ. This is what Christians have always believed. And so this means that it is really important that we look at and understand the significance of who Jesus is and what he came to communicate to us through the story that is told leading up to or before he arrives on the scene. And when you understand the backstory of the Gospels and what lies behind everything that we read on the surface of something like Luke's Gospel, uh, we begin to glean more rich significance from it. You know, part of what makes any story a good story is what it references, right? What it pulls from, what, what it points to or draws from in order to make that story rich or deep and significant. Good art does this, right? All good art is referential. It references another thing. Great music does this as well. I was listening to uh, Jeff Tweedy. I don't know if anybody know who Jeff Tweedy is, but uh, he came out with a new album on Friday, and I was listening to that album. It's really good. You should listen to it. Uh, and he, there's this, this line that caught my attention. He says, I can't see deep, but I can see high and wide, right? And it's just a, it's just a, it's just a line from a, from a song, but you know what he's drawing from there, right? He's, he's drawing, he's using the, uh, the, a bibli biblical language that Paul uses to talk about the love of God. When Paul says, uh, I pray that you would know how, how deep, how high, and how wide is the love of Christ for you, right? He's pulling from that imagery. And you could just, 
take that verse and you could kind of throw it away as, as a surface statement. But if you understand the depth of it, you understand what he's referencing when he says it. It, it. it makes that more meaningful, right? It makes it more deep, more significant. Any of you who have ever listened to Bob Dylan know that he's a master of this, right? He, he's just this constant stream of allusions and references, many of them biblical. And he uses these ideas or images to convey in, uh, in interesting poetic ways the ideas that he's attempting to get across. Good movies do this as well, right? Good movies are always referencing other stories and drawing from past ideas to build a world for us, to build in significance. A great example of this is that a lot of movies adapt Shakespearean stories, right, and set them in modern uh, context. Uh, if you're a musical buff, which I am far from, uh, but I have no problem with if that's you, uh, you'll probably know that West Side Story is just a lightly veiled a musical version of Romeo and Juliet, right? Many of you know that, I'm hoping. You can communicate with me a little if you want to. Thank you. Thank you. So that's one. Uh, and now the next one I'm going to date myself a little bit because I am in my mid-30s. But uh, a big movie when I was growing up was 10 Things I Hate About You. Do you guys know that movie? Yeah. Uh, which is basically uh, Shakespeare's The Taming of the Shrew seen through the lens of, the, of an early aughts high school dramedy, which is fun. Uh, and probably most popular for, in our context today, uh, and in, is probably a most recent memory, is The Lion King, which follows the basic structure of Hamlet. If any of you read Hamlet, you'll know that that's what The Lion King is, that's the story arc of Lion King. Did I blow anybody's mind with that one? No? Everybody's aware of that? Okay, good. You know, you don't, need, you don't need to read Shakespeare to enjoy The Lion King, okay? Just FYI. Uh, but now that you know that, right? Now that you know that, that it, it will lend a kind of depth to what you're experiencing when you, when you listen to that story, right? You, uh, you, you can enjoy all kinds of things, but as you can enjoy all kinds of things on their surface, but as you dig into them and you understand what they're referencing and you understand the, the backstories that are kind of propping up or supporting a particular piece of art or a particular story, it gains significance, right? It, it becomes a more deep, a more enriching experience. So now you don't need to understand the history of King Ahaz, who's the king we're going to be talking about today, struggling with the Assyrian Empire that you can read about in 2 Kings 15, in order to understand exactly what Isaiah is saying, or in order to understand what the Gospels are saying about Jesus, right? But understanding the larger story does deepen or enrich our understanding of who Jesus is and what he came to do. It really does. It's like a surface reading of the story of Jesus in the Gospels. Is kind of, it's kind of like if you were a ship and you were sailing on top of the water. But beneath the surface of the ocean is this kind of depth and biodiversity, right? There's this beauty and significance that you will not see unless you get under the surface. And reading the Old Testament in the light of Jesus, the Messiah, is like putting on scuba gear and going for a little dive. It reveals all kinds of connections and meanings and insights that are beautiful and enlightening and help us to know and love Jesus more. So what I'm hoping to do over the next few weeks is to dive in with you into the Old Testament prophets and to show you some of the ways that they foretold the coming of Christ, because I think it's a really rich experience. And by looking at the actual context and meaning of what these prophets have to say, we're praying that this understanding will deepen and enrich your love for Jesus this Christmas season. That's the hope, right? 
that you see the Chris, that you can see that the Christmas season is about more than holiday lights and Christmas parties as much as I did risk my life to put lights on my house this year. It is an invitation to worship Jesus fully. That's what the Christmas season is, an invitation to worship Jesus fully, both practically with our lives and, and traditions, but also from our hearts, from our hearts, as we look to the scriptures and the Holy Spirit to bring up fresh revelation and vision for us as we move through the season. So today, we're going to hop into Isaiah chapter 9, all right? Now, uh, if, uh, if you don't have your Bibles with you, it would be good to reach under the seat in front of you and grab a Bible because we will be uh, dealing with the text in a little bit more detail today. Um, just, a, just an encouragement for you um, that a Bible is a really great thing to have, and if you don't have one, you can have the one under the seat, or you can come up and talk to me, and we'd love to uh, get you a Bible that you can use. Um, and Christians are not people who worship the Bible, just FYI. Sometimes evangelicals get accused of this. We get accused of worshiping the Bible. We are people who worship Jesus, right, first and foremost, and we believe that the Bible is God's special communication to us. It's a book that reveals the truths about Jesus, and for that reason, we use it and value it, all right? So just a little bit of information, I suppose. All right, so Isaiah 9. Now, Isaiah, along with most of the other prophets in the Old Testament, address Israel and Israel's kings during a time of incredible internal and external political pressure. We're going to dive into the history of Isaiah for a minute, so if any of you like history, you will certainly enjoy this. Uh, internally, for most of the history of Israel, uh, most of its history, Israel was a nation state in the middle of a civil war, of a civil war. It was split between north and south, all right? I think we have a picture, we have a, a slide of Israel here. Can you see that? So that's a good description of what Israel looked like during the time of Isaiah. You have Judah, the southern kingdom there, who's uh, capital was Jerusalem, the city of David. And then in the north, you had what is often called Israel in the scriptures, and its capital was Samaria. It, uh, Judah is called Judah because it was the region uh, in the land that God gave the, the people of Israel where the tribe of Judah settled. So this is what Israel looks like at the time in which Isaiah is writing to the people. And uh, can you imagine, right, if you're, you're this nation, and you are split in two, right? You're split in two. The, the king that Isaiah is addressing, Ahaz, it, it takes up residence in Jerusalem on the seat or the throne of David, and he is addressed as the kind of rightful king of Israel. But there is still this kind of crazy political thing happening in Israel at this time where uh, the northern kingdom is actually kind of set against the southern kingdom. They're fighting, and they're, but they're both attempting to deal with this other thing that is happening that is a kind of external political pressure that isn't just internal to the nation itself, but is also external. You see, as they were fighting uh, this kind of civil war in Israel, there was also a military superpower that was kind of hanging over the top of Israel and threatening to impede or to, uh, to attack them. And we have another uh, slide there. The Assyrian Empire. This is from the year 723, which is right around the time when the prophecy that we read today was given. This is the Assyrian Empire. Do you see how big Assyria is and how little Israel and Judah are down there in the corner? Crazy, right? Crazy. 
Assyria was not uh, a nice nation, right? They were intent on uh, taking over the known world. And at this time, they were the most powerful and significant and ruthless nation that was out there. Uh, Egypt was really scared. The, the Egyptian pharaohs that you can see kind of down in the corner were really scared of Assyria as well at this time. And, it, and they, Assyria was known for their brutality, for their, for their ruthlessness, and for their um, really duplicity. They would lie a lot, and they would say they would make a treaty, and then they would go back on the treaty, and they would conquer people and do all kinds of things like that. If you've ever, ever read the book of Jonah, the book of Jonah, Jonah is, is called by God to go to Nineveh, which was the capital city of Assyria, all right? And he's called to go there and, and to tell those people about God, about Yahweh. And he is not into it at all, okay? And this is because that's what it looked like, right? And that's what it felt like. It felt, like, it felt to Israel like, like Assyria was a shadow that had kind of cast itself over the region, right? The, this Assyrian threat was this ever-present thing. And all of the people in that area were dealing with it. So this is right around the year six or 730 B.C., um, and Assyria is on the move. They're gaining power. They had a number of kings. One of the, one of the kings' name was Tiglath-Pilslar, right? I don't know. That was just in my head. I wasn't even in my notes. <laughs> You're impressed, I know. Uh, and, these guys, and these guys were on the move. Right? These guys were on the move, and they, were cry- and they were trying to take more and more land. And so all of the people in the region of Israel are both fighting the civil war, and they're attempting to figure out, what do we do about Israel? How do we, how do we figure this out? And for the northern kingdom, this is what the northern kingdom decided that they were going to do. They get decided that they didn't have any chance of actually fighting Assyria. They didn't have a shot. And so they decided that they were going to make a treaty. They were going to make treaties, both with kind of Egypt and some surrounding areas and with Assyria itself, because they wanted to just not get steamrolled, right? Uh, but from the, uh, and, and the southern kingdom of Judah was kind of struggling with how to, how to deal with this issue as well. And the, the, particularly their king Ahaz was trying to figure out what he should do. But it's in the middle of this situation, this time of great internal and external political struggle, that the prophets really come on the scene. And they really begin to make statements to the kings, to the ruling authorities, to the political powers of their day about what God wants them to do, what, about what God has for those particular, uh, for Israel in particular. And from the perspective of the prophets, making alliances was a problem. It was a problem. The prophets didn't like this, and they, and they told the kings that they didn't want Israel to make alliances because they, be, because they had this fundamental belief. They had this fundamental belief that Israel was not a normal nation. It was not run-of-the-mill. They believed that, that Israel was God's people, and they actually give all kinds of warnings about treaties and alliances because they knew that the quickest way for Israel to fall away from its worship of the one true God, Yahweh, was to align and intermarry with foreign nations. This is actually what really brought down the nation under Solomon. You know, there are only two kings in Israel who ever ruled over the nation as a, uh, as a unified nation before it was split. The first was David, right? David really uh, unified and solidified the, the Israel as a nation. He expanded their borders, and they were a unified nation. And then his son Solomon did the same thing, except that soon after Solomon's death, the nation split in two because of some of the things that Solomon did while he, was, uh, while he was king. And one of the things he did was take a lot of foreign wives. 
Solomon had a lot of wives. He had a little bit of a hang-up, uh, actually. And but, but what taking a wife meant was that you were making treaties with other people. Sometimes those treaties were uh, economic. They were about trade. Sometimes those treaties were about war. They were about all kinds of things. But one of the things that happened when you made a treaty and you took uh, a wife from a foreign nation was that you also brought along with that, with that person in that nation those people's gods, those people's gods. And so with intermarriage and with treaties came a defilement of Israel's worship. They began to move away from the worship of Yahweh in a singular sense and move into a kind of syncretism, a worship of um, Yahweh, but also these other gods alongside or around Yahweh as well. And the prophets didn't like this. They didn't like it one bit. And they actually said that this kind of, uh, this syncretism was the reason that Israel was enduring so much strife, so much, so many problems, why Israel was a divided nation and why they were being conquered and why there were these incursions from enemy nations into Israel. And in the first part of Isaiah's prophecy, he is speaking to King Ahaz of the southern kingdom in Jerusalem, saying, here's how you solve your problem. Here's how you solve your problem. Turn back to God, worship him alone, and God will deliver you. God will deliver you. But Isaiah also sees a problem. He's saying this to Ahaz, but he also sees a larger problem. And the problem was that he knew that Israel was never really going to return to God in the way that he was prescribing. That, uh, that there, there were decent kings who came along. Ahaz was not one of them, but there were decent kings. One of those kings was a guy named Hezekiah. Say Hezekiah. See, I'm making sure you're listening because this sounds like a boring history class a little bit. Um, Hezekiah came along and was a decent king. He began uh, cleaning up the worship of the people, right? He began to tear down the high places and do all of these things and, and start to cleanse the temple of its foreign idols and things of that nature. But he didn't do all that God wanted him to do. And at the end of his life, Hezekiah began to make more treaties, right? To try to get out from under the Assyria thing and things went wrong. You know, if you read Isaiah's prophecy, you will see that Isaiah knows something. He knows that the kings are not going to lead the people, and he knows that God's people are in quite a pickle, that they're in a pickle, that they are in a situation that they're going to have a hard time getting out of, and that they are going to need a deliverer, a deliverer, a king with superpowers, if you will. This is what they're going to need. And this person uh, becomes known in the, in the Hebrew scriptures as the Messiah, which just means anointed one or anointed king, who would take up the mantle of his father David, this person would be in the line of David, and would lead the people out of their apostasy, free them from their bondage, just like Moses freed the Israelites from, from Egypt, and that this king or this Messiah would set up a kind of enduring kingdom, a kingdom that would last forever, that, and this kingdom would not just be uh, Israel, but it would encompass the whole world. It would be a kind of light to the nations, and that every, all nations and all peoples would be blessed by this nation that this Messiah was going to establish. And he was going to kind of fulfill the prophecy that, uh, the, the prophecy that God spoke to Abraham when he said that Abraham's people would be a blessing to all nations. This is what the Messiah was going to do. 
And for the rest of Israel's history, though they, were, they struggled with these foreign powers, they were, they were captured, they were, uh, they were taken away, the, the, their, their homeland was destroyed, the walls and the temple in Jerusalem were destroyed by a later superpower called Babylon. Throughout this whole time, the faithful, pe- the faithful people of Israel, those who attempted to the best of their ability to stay true uh, to, the, to the worship of, of G- uh, not Jesus, but of Yahweh, are looking for this Messiah. They're hoping for this Messiah to come. And in Jesus' day, this was a big deal. This was a really big deal 730 years later in Jesus' day. Because Assyria had gone away. Assyria had been replaced by another superpower, Babylon. And Babylon even did worse stuff to Israel. And then after Babylon was gone, they were actually conquered by another superpower whose name was the Romans, right? Uh, And... uh, and during the time of Jesus, it was the Romans who were in charge of Israel and had set up their Roman garrisons all over the place and had soldiers marching all over, uh, demanding that people do things like carry their burdens for a mile, right? And in, there's, a, there's a way of reading, there's actually a way of reading the whole history of the Bible that I think is kind of interesting. You can read the story of the Bible as God confronting the superpowers or the principalities and powers of the world. That in some sense, God is always with his people about the business of confronting these powers, these world powers. And Isaiah's whole book, you can read, uh, you can kind of read as uh, in three sections as different prophecies about what this Messiah will actually look like, what this new conquering king, this, this holy one, this anointed servant, what this person will actually look like. And the truth of the matter is, is that though Isaiah gives this prophecy, and it is somewhat fulfilled in the, in the, care, in the king of Hezekiah, the, the vision that is, that is laid out is far larger than just an earthly king. Because this, the, the king that we see that Isaiah talk about has uh, eternal, will, will bring eternal peace, right? The king that we, that we see uh, Isaiah prophesying about has divine power, has divine wisdom, has, has divine authority, and will do all kinds of things that an earthly or flawed king could never do. And so, when the New Testament writers quote the prophet Isaiah in Jesus' birth narrative, it is, it is a way of communicating to their audience, this is what you've been waiting for. This is what you've been waiting for. He's here, the anointed one, the conqueror, the son of David. He's here. And he's going to do for Israel and the whole world what no one else, not David, not Moses, not Abraham, were ever able to do. Where they all failed, this Messiah, this Christ, this Jesus will succeed. And it was scriptures like Isaiah 9 that helped early followers of Jesus understand what his rule and reign would actually look like. That's how they understood what the rule and reign of Jesus would look like. How it would look different from other kings and kingdoms. And what a life lived under that rule is supposed to be like as well. So, uh, for the remainder of our time this morning... Uh, I just want to look at a few features of this prophecy uh, th- given to us in Isaiah 9 so that we can catch uh, a renewed vision of what it means to worship Jesus 
Jesus as the Lord, as the Messiah this Christmas season. Because I think if we, if we read this prophecy with, through the lens of the story of what's happening when Isaiah gives the prophecy, some, uh, interesting, we can pull out some interesting uh, nuggets about who Jesus is and the significant role that he plays in our lives even. Because as Christians, we believe that all scripture kind of uh, flows from and points to the person of Christ. So like I said, it may help to open your Bibles at this point in the service because we're going to be in the text quite a bit. All right? All right. So the first observation I want to make from uh, our teaching text this morning is uh, you can see in verses 2 and 3. And uh, I've labeled this section. I think we have it in slides up there, Jocelyn. uh, The divine increase of joy. The divine increase of joy. This is what it says. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. You have enlarged the nations and increased their joy. They rejoice before you as people rejoice at the harvest, as warriors rejoice when dividing the plunder. As warriors rejoice when dividing the plunder. The language used here uh, is that when the Messiah comes, along with him will be light and joy. Light is actually a kind of way of speaking about the joy that the Messiah will bring. That this Messiah will bring a deliverance from darkness, right? A move from darkness into light. And that this move uh, uh, will really not just deliver from darkness, but actually deliver from a kind of death. A kind of death. Because darkness is associated with death as well in, uh, in this prophecy and other places. To the, to the first people who heard this, they definitely believed and hoped that the, Messiah, that the shadow that was hanging over them, that the Messiah was going to deliver them from, was Assyria, right? When the first audience, when the people that Isaiah gave this prophecy to heard it, that's what they heard. They heard the Messiah is going to take care of Assyria, right? This is what they heard. But for early Christians, the passage began to take on a kind of profound significance, a kind of profound significance and a depth that maybe it didn't take on the surface for the first audience of this, pa- of this prophecy. Uh, Peter, the apostle, uh, most certainly is playing off this idea when he, when he says in 1 Peter 2, uh, verse 9, uh, he says that Christ has called his people out of darkness and into his wonderful light. This is what, this is what Peter says in uh, 1 Peter chapter 2, that that. that that Christ has called his people out of darkness and into his wonderful light. He's playing, off this, he's playing off this prophecy when he says it. And if you remember that when the angel appears to Mary in the birth narrative, what does the angel say? The first thing he says, he says, I bring you good tidings of great joy, of great joy. And what he means here is more than just joy for her, Right? Like, you're pregnant. Congratulations. This is not what he means. He means the Messiah has come. He means the Messiah has come. And he means that this Messiah is going to bring great joy to the whole world. The whole world. A palp- and, now, and this isn't just a feeling. Sometimes when we think of the word joy, we just mean, yeah, at Christmas I'm happy because I get stuff, right? But this joy that is being spoke of in, in Isaiah's prophecy is a lot bigger than just a feeling of being happy. It's much more significant than that. It is a palpable, tangible joy. You know, joy is described as one of the fruits of the Spirit, right? But, uh, actually, but actually, Isaiah says, and he gets real specific with this, he talks about the, the, the way in which this joy should be experienced. And if you look back at, at uh, 
verse 3, he says this, You have enlarged and increased their joy. Uh, they rejoice as people at the harvest, right? So people at the harvest, one. And two, as warriors rejoice when dividing the plunder. So there's two, two descriptions of what this joy looks like. The joy of the harvest and the joy of victory. It's joy like you feel when a, when a great harvest comes in, right? When a great harvest comes in. It's like the joy you feel when you know that there's food for the next year. That it was a successful harvest and we are going to survive, right? There's a kind of joy associated with that. There's not many farmers in here. But I'm sure when you have a big yield, right, there's a kind of unspeakable joy that comes about. Have any of you ever worked for a long time on a thing, and then you've seen that thing come to fruition? Maybe it's building a business. Maybe it's uh, putting together an engine. I don't know what it is. And you've put, in, you've put in effort for a long period of time, right? And when that thing is done and you've, and you've reaped the benefits or you've harvested that, there's a kind of deep significance and joy that comes from that, right? This is the type of joy that uh, this is the type of joy that Isaiah says will be will be brought to uh, people by the Messiah. So that's the first, and the second he says, as warriors rejoice when dividing the plunder. And this is the type of joy that we experience from being victorious in battle. From being victorious in battle. Now. I think when we hear that, we go, oh, I don't know. I've, uh, me personally, I've never been in battle, right? So I don't know what the joy of that looks like. But I, uh, but I don't think the joy is necessarily a joy of conquering one's enemies, right? I don't, think there's, I don't necessarily think that's the joy that he's talking about here. The joy that he's talking about here is the type of joy you experience when there's no more fighting. When none of our sons or daughters have to go off to war any longer. When everyone is safe and free from oppression, right? There is a deep sense of abiding joy when you know that you are safe and that there's no more war, right? There's, there's this deep joy that wells up within one's heart when they know that the fighting is done, that the fighting is over, and now there's just peace. There's just peace. And this is the type of deep and abiding, bubbling joy the, the Messiah brings. The Old Testament scholar uh, Alec Motyer says this, both harvest and victory are divine gifts. They're divine gifts. Harvest belongs to the sphere of nature, the plunder to the sphere of history. The messianic day provides deliverance from uh, adversity brought through, circ uh, through circumstances or by people. Through circumstances or by people, right? So for the farmer who, uh, whose, whose harvest wasn't going well, the Messiah brings an increase of harvest, right? The circumstances that we deal with in our lives, the, those bills that just keep mounting up, right? Those, those struggles we have, that illness that we have in our body that we just can't seem to get rid of. There is a kind of joy that comes along with experiencing the Messiah that brings joy in the midst of those struggles. And the second one is people. Delivery from other people, right? Lord, deliver me from other people, right? Deliver me from the tyranny of other people. This, now, there's this kind of joy that comes along with being free from the circumstances that, that steal our joy from other people, right? And the Messiah brings this. 
you know, this all points to the fact that when the Messiah comes, Isaiah says, there is going to be total joy. Joy in my most difficult circumstances, joy in my most difficult circumstances, and joy in my most difficult relationships, right? This is the type of joy that the Messiah brings. And you know, one of the most powerful things I've ever seen in my life, one of the most miraculous things I see, and I run across it from time to time, to time is when I see a person who's a follower of Jesus, who has a kind of unquenchable joy, regardless of their life situations, a lot of times the people you run into who have this kind of joy, who carry it with them always, and it's kind of contagious, a lot of them have lives that you and I wouldn't want, right? Have you ever known anybody like this? You're like, I don't like your house, but you're happy about it, right? I don't, I don't know why you're okay with this. There's, this is a problem. Your car just broke down. Why don't you get mad and kick it or something? And they're like, no, I'm good. I'm good. I have joy unspeakable. That was a really high voice. <laughs> that was Mickey Mouse saying joy unspeakable. Uh, there is this kind of unexplainable joy that comes about, that kind of bubbles out of the hearts of some people. And, and it, it is one of the more miraculous things. And it comes from having an encounter with the Messiah. It comes from having an encounter with the Messiah. It comes from having uh, the knowledge that this God has released us from darkness, that he, his light has shined on us, and that we have been freed up to have both joy from our most difficult circumstances and joy in our most difficult relationships. This is the type of joy that the Messiah wants to bring to your heart, to your heart. So that's one. That's the first observation. The second observation is that war is over. War is over. So if you look at verse 4 and verse 5 of our passage for today, and I'm going to move quickly here. For as the day of Midian's defeat, you have shattered the yoke that burdens them, the bar across their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor. Every warrior's boot used in battle and every garment rolled in blood will be destroyed for burning, will be fuel for the fire. When the Messiah comes, there will be no more need for war because his victory is final. His victory is final. So burn your clothes, your blood-soaked garments that you use to fight because those who seek to oppress you are defeated and there is no more need to fight. There's no more need to fight. You can hear uh, the first audience, right, hear this and say, I don't want to fight Assyria, <laughs> right? I don't want to go to battle and die. I, don't want, I, don't wanna, I, I want the Messiah to come and handle this for me, right, so that I can burn my war stuff and, 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 and not have to fight. And God has promised to fight battles for the people of Israel if they just turn to him. You know, at, when it, it references in verse 4, Midian's defeat. If you, read, if you read the Old Testament, it's af actually referencing back to a guy named Gideon. Gideon was a very poor military leader. He was really bad at it. He won one of the biggest victories that Israel ever won. And he did it because he was there and he was going to fight, but then God just fought for him, Right? And the, 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 the people that he was in Midian, was, they were coming to fight, and they were going to destroy Israel. And then the people of Israel prayed, and God just, a big light appeared, and that scared all the people of Midian, and they ran away, right? This is, what, this is the story that this book is referencing. And, it, and what, what the prophet is saying is that when the Messiah appears, there's no more need to fight, because God will fight your battles for you. God will fight your battles for you. Now, this was literal for them, Right? This was literal for the people who were hearing it. They believed that they would literally not need to take up arms in war anymore. And for us, I believe it is both literal and, and spiritual that we don't need to fight people. We don't need to fight people. 
We don't have any enemies, except for that cell phone. I fight it. No. <laughs> Sorry. Uh, <laughs> this is really close. Uh, <laughs> the, uh, we don't need to fight anymore. We don't need to fight anymore. So I'm just going to leave that there and move on to the last part. So uh, the final observation uh, from this text that I want to m- pull out today is just that uh, those names, those names that you hear read, uh, Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, those names that are given to the Messiah in Isaiah's <laughs> prophecy. You know, in the first century world, when a king became a king, he took a throne name. He took a throne name. Now, this still happens in our day, right? When the pope becomes the pope, he takes a pope name. Uh, I guess that's what you call it. Uh, when, uh, when, you know, when, uh, when the king of England or queen of England ascends to the throne, they take a formal throne name, right? And by taking that throne name, they, they're in some sense communicating what their, what their tenure as the leader is going to be like, right? So you take a, you take a name of a, a person that you really liked or, or who was very kind or who was uh, good in battle or all of these things. And you, it's a way of saying, this is what my rule is going to be like. These, this name that I take is, is a way of saying, here's what my rule is going to be like. And the Messiah is described in Isaiah's story as having these four names, Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And we hear all of these names referenced about Jesus in the Gospels, right? But I just want to walk through them briefly because I think when we, when we, they're so familiar to us that when we hear them, we kind of glean over them. But when we dive into them, there's some depth and significance here. So the first one is wonderful counselor. Wonderful counselor. This is drawing off the Old Testament idea of wisdom. Of wisdom. The Messiah, the, this one who would come, this anointed king and ruler, was going to have divine wisdom to lead his people. And he would need it because he needed to lead them well. It draws off the idea of Solomon. Solomon had a divine wisdom, a wisdom that was not his own in order to lead, the, lead God's people. He kind of gave that away because he married a bunch of ladies that he shouldn't have married. But um, w- it's wise to marry one person. It is unwise to marry 300, <laughs> just for the record. Um, uh, but this, this Messiah who would come, this Messiah who would come, was a wonderful counselor, one who had divine wisdom, one, the, one who knew how to deal with the situations that would, would, would arise in the nations. And when we read it about Jesus, we read a, that, that Jesus as the Messiah is a wonderful counselor. He is one who has great wisdom. He is someone that you should listen to. He's someone that you should listen to. Okay, that's one. Mighty God. This word, mighty God, actually in the Hebrew, really means liberating warrior or one with great strength. This Messiah has power to liberate his people from the bonds that hold them down. Whether that be Assyria or whether it be another thing. This Messiah is mighty. This, this Messiah has the authority and power to liberate us from the bonds that hold us in place. The third one is Everlasting Father. Everlasting Father. Father is a name that is only ever used of God in the Old Testament. It's never used of anybody else. And so this, this moniker is a way of saying that this divine Messiah was also going to be a kind of, uh, is go, this Messiah was also going to be divine, right? That this Messiah was also going to have something of his character tra- wrapped up in who God is. And, uh, and, and the, it characterizes his rule as being a rule where he, of, of care and concern for his people, of care and concern for his people. This God has deep care and concern for his people, just as a father would have care and concern for children. There will, uh, the inbreaking of this Messiah's rule will be one that is, that, is, uh, that is marked by care and concern. So that's three. Number four, the Prince of Peace. 
peace is more than just, uh, uh, and we talked about this a little, but peace is more than just the cessation of war, right? On a personal level, to be at peace is to have lived a fulfilling life, having achieved all that God has planned for you. You right? But peace is also a kind of personal well-being, a freedom from anxiety. Don't we all want hearts that are at peace? And the Messiah, in his rule and in his reign, claims that there is great peace for us. And corporately, right, so that's individual, but corporately, peace means goodwill and harmony. It doesn't just mean the absence of war. It means actual flourishing. It means goodwill and harmony with the people. But it also means a kind of peace with God, peace with God, as we step into the full realization of that God's favor and love for us. You know, when we encounter the Messiah, when we encounter the Messiah, there is a deep and abiding peace, a deep and abiding peace that we are called to. A life that is more free of anxiety, that is more free of struggle, that is more free of battle, that is more free of our own ignorance. This is what the Messiah has promised. And in the New Testament, the gospel writers, the witnesses say, that Messiah has come. And the benefits of his kingdom are available to you and to me. They're available. They're here. If you want them. If you want them. Those benefits are here. And yes, we all struggle to live fully under the rule and reign of this God who is good, who is everlasting father and, and prince of peace and wonderful counselor. Yes, we struggle to live into the reality of that kingdom, right? We don't always do it well, but it is available and it is here for us. And to to look to Jesus as Messiah is to look to is to have all of those benefits that are the the byproduct of his rule and reign present in our lives and in our midst. And so this morning, just as we close, I just want to say that as clearly as I can. Those benefits are available to you. They're there and they're present from the Messiah Jesus. And as you put your faith and your hope in that one, in that person, and you step into or under the rule and reign of that God, those, those benefits are available to you this morning, this week, this Christmas season, when, ev when everything feels anything but calm or peaceful or wise or any of those things. They're available. So as we close today, I just want to pray for you that you would experience that, tho those benefits of that Messiah this Christmas season, that you, would, that you would look away from the glitz and the glamour of it all, and you would look to the person of Jesus as the source, and, and uh, the one who is the source and sustainer of your life. Can I pray for you? Let's pray. Father, we love you, and we ask God that you would help us to see you as the Messiah, the one prophesied in the book of Isaiah, the one who would come, the one who would bring deliverance for us, that you would be for us this Christmas season a wonderful counselor that we, and we would listen to your wisdom. That you would be a mighty God and that you would liberate us from the powers that oppress us, that hold us down, that keep us in bondage. That you would be an everlasting father to us, that we would feel uh, most acutely your love for us, your care and concern for your people. And that you would be a prince of peace 
that this Christmas season, this Advent season, we would be at peace, both internally as, as people, with ourselves, both externally in our other human relationships that might not always feel all that peaceful, and with you, God, that we would cultivate peace with you through your Son, Jesus Christ, that we would look to Jesus as the one who would bring us peace. And so now, in the name of that Jesus, we thank you. We claim the benefits of being a citizen of this kingdom with this king. And we ask that you would help us to walk in them, walk in the fullness of it this week and this month and this year. And we pray it all in that name, the name that is above every other name, Jesus. Amen and amen and amen. Go today in the grace and in the peace of the Lord Jesus Christ.